The mind, by nature, is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces, visiting to the mind, forces known as kalesas or the torments that we suffer. So when you reflect back over the day and you consider the difficult, the challenging, the unsatisfactory periods of your practice today, whether you were impatient or frustrated or disappointed or found yourself struggling or critical or whatever it is, that suffering, that lack of contentment and ease and peace of mind was because of a visiting force to the mind. A visitor entered the mind and either we weren't aware of it or we didn't deal with it in an effective way and so it had its way with us. I like to think of these torments as dysfunctional strategies for dealing with the challenges of life. And we all have plenty of, you know, ineffective ways of dealing with difficulties, challenges. So when we hear what the Buddha said, if we can believe what the Buddha said, or even just suspend our doubt about what the Buddha said, we would want to know, well, what, what are these dysfunctional strategies? What are these visitors to the mind? How do we uh, identify them? How do we recognize them? What can we do with them? Is it possible to be free of them? Because, as Saida Utejaniya says, it's not you who removes these torments from the mind. It's not you who does that. Wisdom does that job. So right there we have a clue as to how to work with these visitors to the mind, these torments to the mind. It's not by struggling with them. It's not by trying to get rid of them. It's not by trying to avoid them or deny them or minimize them or rationalize them. But it's by about learning about them. Once we know their nature, we won't be confused by them. We'll be less caught by them. They'll visit our heart or mind less often and for a shorter period of time. So, how do we understand these dysfunctional strategies? Well, they are the habitual, reactive, unskillful uh, ways that you, I, we all deal with uh, things that we don't like, things that we do want, um, difficulties, challenges, things that uh, promise a better life for us or that seem to be bothering us. And usually we're unaware of them. I should say we're unaware of them until they have a hold of us. And then we feel them as, well, I'm angry, I'm depressed, I'm frustrated, I'm caught in some tormented state of mind. <laughs> the way we can understand them is that they're always all of them are rooted in delusion or ignorance. Now, I make a distinction, and it's just a subtle distinction, but I use the two words. And ignorance is 
the kind of experience you had today when doing the best you could, trying to be present and remember to recognize the present moment, at times the mind wanders off into a train of thought and it, while it's wandering in this train of thought, you don't know it's wandering. You don't know when you got on this train. You don't know where you're going to get off. You don't know how long it's been. You don't know what posture you're in. You don't know your age, your name, the time of day. You don't know a friggin' thing. You're just totally oblivious to that's what's going on in your mind. Did anybody have that experience? Wandering mind. And yet, when we recover our mind and we are back in the present moment and be able to check in again, sometimes we can remember everything we just thought, even though at the time we weren't aware of it at all. Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, just think about this. We're trying to be aware of what's going on. Just think if we weren't trying to be aware of what's going on how long we could be lost in these trains of thought. I mean, it was just like living in a train station. We're just getting on one train after another and never getting out of the station. Okay, we say that this level of ignorance, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm just saying when ignorance is in the mind, we don't, we don't know anything. And it obscures the object. We don't see what's happening in the present moment. I make a distinction between that and what I'm going to call delusion, which is knowing the object, knowing what our experience is, but not understanding it correctly. And with this delusion, we attribute significance or value or meaning or purpose to things that don't inherently have that. And this happens, and we are familiar with this, when for example, attachment arises in the mind and we look at a person, a car, a house, a career, whatever, a potential partner. We look at them and we say, yes, just what I need. I need that. Because when attachment arises in the mind, it causes the mind to see only the pleasant characteristics of what we're looking at. That's the nature of attachment. It, always, it only shows you the pleasant aspect of what you're looking at. On the other hand, when aversion arises in the mind, and you look at that same person, same car, same experience, and aversion's in the mind, all you can see is the unpleasant characteristics of it. So we would say that we see the object, we see the person, we see the car, we see the house, we see the holiday, we see whatever it is we're looking at, and yet we attribute through these deluded lenses of the mind, either it's all positive or it's all negative, all pleasant or all unpleasant. This kind of ignorance or delusion, for the ignorance that we don't see at all, we have to develop mindfulness for the confusion or the wrong understanding of what we see, we have to develop insight. So, with that as its taproot, these visitors to the mind are fueled 
by restlessness. And restlessness is the wandering mind. They appear as often as the wandering mind. And these wandering minds are always about me. And they're a narrative. They're some kind of narrative of my life. Oh, if I get this, then I'll be happy. If I don't have to do that, then I'll be really good. And what if I go there? I'll be afraid. And, then, and it's always about some experience that we're having or imagine having or had or want to have. And it's this restlessness of the mind, this mind that just churns out random thoughts about that experience under the influence of attachment, aversion, confusion, delusion. So we're familiar with different forms of attachment, desire, longing, even being identified with, uh, being caught in an entitlement mentality. These are all forms of attachment. Forms of aversion, there's some very gross forms of aversion, such as anger, rage, uh, striking out at the object. There are also the internally oppressive forms of aversion, like depression, uh, despair, frustration, disappointment, impatience. And then there is the pushing away, the kind of the gentle forms of irritation, uh, you know, whinging, whining, impatience, or feeling, uh, complaining, complaining and feeling disdain for experience or someone. And this is where we just kind of want to shun and avoid some, something that we see as unpleasant under the influence of aversion. So normally, these visitors to the mind, so deeply rooted in delusion or ignorance, fueled by restlessness, they have occurred so often in our life, we kind of take them for granted. Like, you know, we don't think it's a big deal to get a little irritated or impatient or, you know, frustrated or disappointed. It's, it's just the way I am. And that's not true. What has happened is, over the course of, you know, our life, these visitors to the mind have arisen so often, we've kind of eternalized it. You know, I often confess that it, it seems like I wasn't born with, an, with a patience gene. Because impatience seems to be my default setting for dealing with everything, which is, not, which is kind of a dysfunctional strategy. But nevertheless, it's, you know, I'm working with it. It's a lifetime practice. But, but because it has arisen so often, I have this, you know, kind of assumption that I'm always, I'm always, I'm always impatient. That sounds, that sounds pretty right. And from I'm always impatient to I'm an impatient person, it's just that far. When I think that I'm always impatient and it's my impatience, it's me who's impatient, then we think or we begin to believe that I am an impatient person. And once that belief gets kind of planted in your mind, it's almost impossible to get out. It's very difficult to change your beliefs, even about yourself. And so 
you know, I could ask you, what's your, what's your prevailing strategy for dealing with difficult situations? So frustration, anger, desire, avoidance, denial, minimizing, uh, blaming. I mean, well, actually, we have them all. <laughs> but uh, we can see that they're not very effective in leading our heart and mind, our life, towards peace, happiness, contentment, ease, somehow feeling open and welcoming of all of life's experience. So we could say that these visitors to the mind, they obstruct our being able to live this human life fully. For example, take fear. We all experience fear. It might be fear of dogs, it might be fear of snakes, it might be fear of public speaking, it might be fear of social situations, it might be fear of failure, it might be fear of expressing your emotions, it might be fear of intimacy. And when that fear has a hold of us, you know, as my therapist says, you either have emotions or they have you. If you don't know and if you can't own, if you can't be with these feelings, you'll be jerked around by them. You'll be, they will visit you and they'll own the house. Oh, okay. So they prevent us from living fully this potential human life. As I said, with fear, you know, if we, if we only do what, fear, what we're not afraid of, the longer we live, the smaller the box becomes that we live in. We just, you know, just don't go there. Too, for, too, too scary, too scary, too scary, too scary. I'm, fr- I'm afraid of that, I'm afraid of that. And pretty soon we're living in this tight little box in our mind. They also hinder our practice. They hinder our ability to establish a continuity of mindfulness, of awareness, and to gain insightful understanding that frees us from suffering. In this way, when we have doubt, doubt is in this practice, it's considered a hindrance. When we have doubt, if we don't see the doubt, we will try to figure it out, we'll try to explain it, we'll compare different kinds of practices that we've heard or practiced with, or different teachers, and which one's right, and which one's wrong, and what do I do with this, and when this kind of experience happens, what do I do? And if we don't know how to practice, if we can't get a boost in confidence, that doubt will paralyze our practice. We'll just stop. We won't know. It's like coming, they say that doubt is like being a traveler in a foreign land, coming to an intersection in the roadway where there's no road sign. Which way do you go? Left or right? You know. You know the old Yogi Berra um, one-liner? You know, if if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah, right, okay. Um, but that you can see how paralyzed the mind becomes when we don't really know how to practice effectively yet. And we're just ruminating and reviewing everything we've read and everything we've imagined and using our best thought and logic to figure something out. And we can't. You can't overcome thought, can't overcome doubt by thinking. You can only take a practice practice with it, and my experience is that'll get you past your doubt. 
Therefore, because they obstruct living fully and hinder our practice, they really prevent us from finding true peace and happiness in our life. And yet, they're the very strategies we use to try to get what we want, what we think we need. So it's like these torments, these visitors, enchant the mind into one, as Upandita calls it, one long, lifelong running hallucination. We keep using these dysfunctional strategies, hoping that we'll get a different result. But mindfulness is like a searchlight, looking, searching for faults in these clouds of delusion. Because there are gaps, there's basically, we can see through the delusion of this wandering mind if we're mindful. This is mindfulness. However, you know, these torments are not accidental. They don't, no, nobody's foisting them off on you. You know, they arise, and, and it's not even your fault, but they arise due to causes and conditions, some of which, some of which are outside of your immediate control. One of the causes and conditions is that we don't understand that these are unskillful states of mind. Sometimes we think, in this situation, I need to be angry. I need to stand my ground. I need to be angry, and I'm going to be self-righteously that way to defend myself. We've all been in situations like that. We will choose to be right over choosing to be free. Right? Who's holding on? We're holding on. I want to be right, and if I let go, I could be free, but I'm not... I want to be right. Remember when you had that last argument with someone? You insisted on your way? Okay, so these, these things happen because they, are, they arise due to causes and conditions. They're natural. They're not accidental, ever. We may not understand how they arise, but there is, we can be sure that there's quite a, a habit of them arising in the mind and us acting them out. But we should not think of them as an obstacle to our practice or an obstacle to our living our life fully, but rather see them as an opportunity because they can be seen and arrested by mindfulness. They can be replaced by wholesome states of mind. They can be known through awareness and they can be understood through insight. They're the Dharma. They are the momentary experience. They're the Dharma. This is the way it is for me at this time. And that's what we pay attention to with our awareness. So these torments, when they arise, they arise in the mind. They don't arise in the body, but when they arise in the mind, they condition unpleasant experiences in the body. We feel tight, we feel tense, we feel stressed, we feel anxious, we feel you know, contracted, we feel, and this is all in the body, due to the conditioning of, those, of these tormented states of mind. We also feel the unpleasantness in the mind with, you know, feeling disagreeable, tension, reactive, uh, aversive, guilty, blaming. These torments cause us to experience a lot of unpleasantness. When they're not recognized, when they're not understood, 
when we're not aware of them, they only grow stronger. This gives us another clue as to how to work with them in our practice. Rather than trying to get rid of them, avoid them, deny them, it's like acknowledge them. So, when the Buddha awoke to the truth of his suffering and understood the cause of that suffering and the end of that suffering, he articulated the journey to the end of suffering in the, four, in the Eightfold Noble Path. So when he spoke about the path, it's really three trainings. And the three trainings address three gradients of suffering, or three gradients of these torments. And the first training in the Noble Eightfold Path is sila, or undertaking the training to refrain from harming others by speaking and acting carelessly under the influence of one of these torments. And we're practicing that here by taking the precepts every day. And so we're able to arrest the acting out of desire and aversion and blaming and self-pity, whatever it is. And we're not lost in it because we're just, we have this commitment to this training to exercise restraint. So sila is the practice of awareness of these intentions before speaking and acting. And it helps to get a handle on the worst or the most painful display of these torments. So we're not acting them out. But sometimes even though we're not acting them out, we're not saying what we'd like to say. We're not saying what we're thinking. And we're not acting it out, but we're kind of obsessed by it. We may, you may have noticed today that there are sometimes these obsessive act, you know, tracks the mind will run on where you just want to say or you just want to do or you wish you'd said or you wish you could do something that you either did or want to do and, and none of it's wholesome. <laughs> it's all leading to, well, obsession. And if you acted it out, worse. So when, we're, when the mind is caught in obsession, even though we're not acting it out, we're keeping sila. We're not speaking and we're not acting. Still, we're suffering. So the second practice of the Noble Eightfold Path is to practice mindfulness, which is remembering to recognize the present moment. And while the present moment may be very difficult, it may be unpleasant, it may be pleasant, it may be one of these torments of the mind, if we're aware of it, we're not obsessed by it. We're not acting it out. So it's the continuity of mindfulness that purifies the mind momentarily from obsessing. Sila purifies our speech and behavior. Mindfulness, moment-to-moment mindfulness, purifies our mind of obsessing. A lot of practice takes place right here, where we have enough mindfulness, enough awareness to see these obsessions. We see our frustration, we see our depression, we see our fear, we see our dissatisfaction of one sort or another, and yet there isn't enough wisdom to let go of that obsession. So the third training in the Noble Eightfold Path is the practice of wisdom, developing insight in order to understand the torments, to understand these states of mind. 
because insight purifies our understanding. It's because of un- uh, it's because of misunderstanding, delusion and confusion, aversion, that we believe these things. We 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 are in in enwrapped with these unwholesome states of mind. So the practice of insight leads us to purify our understanding, and this gives us the key to the happiness of peace. So, having heard all that, what can we do about it? There are three elements to the wisdom that is necessary to remove these defilements, these torments, these dysfunctional strategies from our heart. And the three elements are information, or what's called suttamayapanya. It's what we hear, it's what we read, it's what we acquire from others, the knowledge that we acquire from others. It might be Buddhist knowledge, it might be psychological knowledge, it's just any knowledge that leads you to understand this way of suffering. The second uh, kind of knowledge is using your own intelligence. From what you've heard and what you've read, we reflect on these habits of mind, or we reflect on these uh, torments, and we can arrive at some understandings, and we can arrive at some aspiration to apply practice to be free of them. So we use our intelligence to reflectively understand the torments and to see them in our own experience and how much harm they've caused us in our life, how much they stress our lives, how much dissatisfaction or unhappiness they bring to our life. And when we reflect in this way, it's not just to kind of bum yourself out. It's to get an understanding of, yeah, from what you've heard, yeah, this is true, this this really is pretty pervasive. It really is suffering. You know, it is really, it, it, you know, sometimes we think it's really, it feels good to just get it out. You know, your anger, your resentment, or whatever, just get it out. But actually, you know, that's not so skillful. And if we reflect carefully, we'll see that it isn't, and we'll understand why. But just understanding and thinking about what you've read and what you've heard is not sufficient to change your beliefs deeply in your heart. And for that we need insight. We need to practice uh, clearly seeing and knowing for ourselves, through our own experience, oh, this is what's causing suffering. So that kind of knowledge is called bhavanamaya panya, the wisdom that comes from mental development, meditation. So there's three kinds. There's knowledge, there's using your intelligence, and there's insight. So the first element of information has two steps. And the first step is that you have to hear this information. Because if we don't, if it isn't pointed out to us that, hey, speaking like that's not very skillful, this is going to cause you some suffering, or acting like this is going to cause you some suffering, or it does cause you some suffering. If we get the information about these visitors to the mind, and we understand how dangerous they are in the, the harm they cause us, the dissatisfaction in our life that they cause us, then we're, we, we, may, we may feel inspired to do something about it. But as long as we don't 
nobody, as long as nobody's pointing it out to us that that's not a nice thing to do, then we may just act it out. And we see this, we see this all the time. People that just don't quite get it that, you know, being abusive, speaking abusively, not telling the truth is harmful to oneself and to others. Okay. There's, there's a lot of people that don't, that don't know that. We may know it, but we still may do it. But at least we know this is not skillful. So having this information, we can, we can then, through the practice of awareness, we can begin to recognize it in our own experience. Now this is not as easy as it seems. You know, we can hear about these tormented states of mind, but when it comes time to recognize them in our own experience, we don't see them. You know, today, whenever you were not recognizing, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, you were entangled in one of these states of mind. Really. It's like every time. And it's like, we're so used to them, we don't, we don't see them. Even though we're suffering with them, we don't recognize it as suffering. We think it's normal. That's how hard it is to, to begin to recognize you know, the power, the influence that these visitors have on our mind. So we practice mindfulness, meaning we try to remember to recognize the present moment's experience, and we train with the simplest, most frequent, ordinary experiences of our life. We're sitting, we're standing, we're walking, we're breathing in, we're breathing out, and a few other very simple things. If you just try to remember that much, you will start seeing the momentum of your awareness will gain, and you'll start seeing other things in your mind, particularly these forms of suffering. When you're not able to be present, or when you're not present, you'll be, you'll be lost, and you'll recognize them. So being, uh, beginning to recognize them, we begin to recognize how we experience them personally. It's, not, it's like we take it out of the book and out of the, what we've heard and we say, oh, this is how I experience irritation. This is how I experience depression. This is how I experience blaming or being blamed. Then there's a technique, it's a very simple technique it's, that works to help us kind of own it, to own these states psychologically, is to just name them. It said that, you know, psychologically, to name your demon begins to take its power away. So if you can see what's going on, if you get a sense of what's going on, and just say, oh, this is fear. This is, this is fear. Or, this is anger, or, this is irritation, or this is rage, or this is whatever it is. You stop just kind of assuming, oh, this is the way I am, and you start seeing it as, wow, this is not a very skillful thing to be doing. So we own it. And we're also able to kind of step back from it. We own it subjectively, but we're able to recognize it and step back from it objectively. So it's this ability to both own subjectively and step out of objectively that begins, that is possible through awareness. This is the first step. The second step is to kind of accept this is the way it is for me for now. I'm really caught in it. You know, it's really a pain. It's really not, it's not pleasant. And so we want to relax 
our judgments about ourselves. It's not you. It's not your anger. It's not your impatience. They have their own nature. They have their own way. They have their own causes and conditions. And it's not about you. So when we relax our judgment and our self-condemnation, then we can then we can kind of see it a little more objectively. But if we're just piling on more aversion, self-hatred, self-aversion to the fact that I'm really experiencing this unhappiness, you know, it just makes it even further buried under layers of delusion. So we relax our judgment, our condemnation, and accept, or I should say acknowledge, this is the way it is for me, for now. And this is important, to own it, it's the way it is for me, and to limit it for now. Because, you know, we know things change. And if we think we have, to, if we thought that we had to live with this condition forever, we'd give up. And you don't have to. It's just a momentary visitor to the mind. Okay. So, when we acknowledge this is a conditioned habit, we see that, oh, this is not me. This is, this is not who I am, really. You know, this isn't the essential Steve that's believing or acting out or obsessing in this way. This is a habit, deeply conditioned through repetition. But as Sayadaw Uttajaniya says, the mind is not yours. The mind is not yours. But you're responsible for it. Meaning, it's not what comes into the mind you know, it just arises due to causing conditions outside of your control. You know, somebody could come in, I mean, if somebody just came in the back door now and started slam the door and started screaming at you for being so blah, 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 blah about meditating, you'd have a reaction, right? Your mind would be owned by them. What happens in your mind is not under your control. It's not yours. And yet, once you hear that, or once you see that, or once you hear or see anything in your life, or feel anything, then you've got to deal with it. Then you're responsible for how you're going to respond to that, or whether you're just going to react out of deeply conditioned habit, or whether you're going to respond with some awareness, understanding, compassion. That's our responsibility. That doesn't come automatically. The reaction of anger, desire, confusion, that's automatic. That's deeply conditioned habits. It's not who you are. So we don't need to struggle to get rid of these tormented visitors to the mind, tormenting visitors to the mind, but rather we just want to understand that they arise due to causes and conditions outside of our immediate control. They have arisen, they're habitual, and we can work with them. We can use our own thoughts about them by understanding, oh, these are visitors to the mind, it's not who I am. That'll encourage you to practice. And they arise due to causes and conditions outside of our control. That means, okay, I'm not responsible. I can work with them. So it helps us to overcome the habits of indulgence or kind of identification with these states of mind. So the second element or the second kind of knowledge that we have to bring into play after we have this kind of information the, the general information, the objective information, and the subjective information of our own experience, is we have to use our intelligence. And we use our intelligence to think about what it is that's going on. 
how it happens, how we get caught, what it does to us so that we can practice more skillfully. So the third step or the third, yeah, the third step in working with these states of mind is to exercise some restraint because the tendency is, you know, to act them out to get rid of them. You know, you have some desire for something. You want, you want something. You know, and when you really want something, it's a, it's a pretty obsessive state of mind that gets caught up in, I want that. I gotta have my daily latte. I gotta, you know, that's just, that's just, since that's a minor one. But nevertheless, it can be pretty compulsive, pretty obsessive. And we have others, we know. Let's just assume that we all know. Uh, so, when we have that kind of desire, we, we don't think, we don't think, oh, this desire is just going to go away by itself. I don't really have to do anything about it. Otherwise, we just wait for it to go away. But we think, I've got to get rid of this desire, and the only way to get rid of it is to act it out, to get what I want. Now, I've always had this, I mean, I grew up with this assumption, and it took, it took a while to identify that this was an assumption, an unspoken assumption in my life, and I want to run it by you just to see if it sounds familiar to you. I always had this assumption that if I could get what I want, I'd be happy. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound reasonable? If I could just get what I want, my latte every day, my this, my that, if I could get it, then I'd be happy. That's not true. We have gotten all kinds of things that we've wanted in our life. Experiences, pleasant experiences, people experiences, knowledge. We've pursued all, we're endlessly pursuing more things that we want and we're never satisfied. We think it's going to satisfy us and it doesn't. We have to look at, we have to recognize this and say, Wait a minute, I have been pursuing my desires for 68 years, or 23 years, or however long it is, this lifetime. And maybe, maybe other lifetimes besides that. When am I going to learn? When am I going to recognize it doesn't work? Don't, don't, don't listen to me. Don't, don't, don't believe me. Just hear what I say and check it out for yourself. Use your own intelligence around this thing. Because as when these torments are overwhelming, we think we've got to satisfy them somehow. We've got to express our anger. We've got to pursue our desires or whatever. But we need to exercise restraint before we can begin to really work with them. And we can do that in a few ways. One is we can replace this uh, tormenting state of mind with its antidote. For example, when aversion arises in the mind, many of you know how to practice loving-kindness or metta. If you practice loving-kindness, if you have it as a developed practice in your life, when irritation, impatience, or anger arises, you can practice loving-kindness and chill. Okay, that, that's, a good, that's a good tool to have, to know how to deal with your aversion through replacing it with loving-kindness. You can practice, you know, um, <laughs> excuse me, you can practice uh, faith, or you can recall faithful experiences of yourself or your teachers or what you've read to overcome your doubt in practice. Uh, 
You can practice forgiveness if you find yourself caught in blaming and resentment. So these are ways of just exercising some restraint, momentary restraint from acting these out. You can't avoid them. You can just not pay attention. You know, big step in you know, AA is you just don't go into bars. You don't, you don't pretend that it's going to be anything other than bad for you. So, you know, as, as some poet, some famous poet has said, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> and what that means is, hey, if we just go willy-nilly wandering around in our mind, we're going to find all kinds of, well, you know, unskillful things that we like and would want to do and act out and otherwise. So don't go there without your guardian of awareness. When, when you go wandering around your mind just to see what's in all the spare rooms, take your awareness with you because you want to be on guard to what you discover there. Okay, so if we can recognize the state of mind when it's arisen, how we personally experience it, have an objective understanding of it, and we cannot be caught in a self-judgment reaction, relaxing around the recognition, then we can exercise some restraint where we're not acting it out, we're replacing it, we're minimizing it, we're turning away from it. Even by just being with, instead of being lost in the mind that's obsessing, even if we just recognize seeing, hearing, feeling, the present moment as it is, that's, that's still being mindful, but you're turning away from what is presently an overwhelming force of that visitor to the mind. This is wisdom. Turning away from an overwhelming force, turning away, backing up, recharging your batteries, refreshing your mind, is wisdom. It's not aversion to avoid, to move away from that which is overwhelming and and unwholesome. So recognize these ways of exercising restraint when faced with some of these, well, challenges, some of these difficulties in practice. And the fourth step in working with these visitors to the mind is to reframe your understanding. So often we have this assumption, you know, when you're sleepy, you know, you're practicing and you get sleepy, we assume, I got to get rid of this sleepiness so I can practice. Or when we get caught up in some obsessive, you know, mind game of anger or whatever, we say, I got to get rid of this anger so I can calm down and be peaceful. And that's a wrong understanding. It 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 kind of pushes the pushes the work aside in the hopes of just kind of magically spiritually bypassing having to work with it. Just kind of kind of leap over this little experience of anger or frustration or desire or doubt or fear and just kind of arrive at spiritual goodness. It doesn't work. We need to reframe our understanding and say something like, this is not an obstacle to practice. It's an opportunity to practice. And it's an opportunity because these are the very experiences that we're not yet able to be mindfully aware of. We're just caught in them. We're caught in them and they're acting them out if we're not exercising restraint. And so we need to reframe our understanding and say, no, this is the very place to establish awareness. Not to just try to get rid of them. So as Sayadaw Utejaniya again says, 
try to recognize that these torments are simply, simply torments. They're not yours. They're not your torment. Every time you identify with them as yourself, or if you reject them, you only increase their strength. So denying them or minimizing them or just kind of ignoring them only feeds them. He says the wandering mind, you know this restless wandering mind that fuels all of these things, that's not the problem. The problem is that you have an attitude of aversion towards the wandering mind. If you think that the wandering mind is a problem, you'll just want to get rid of it, aversion. But if you recognize, oh, this is the, these are the, this is the fuel for this unwholesome state of mind, then you can work with it. You'll be willing to work with it. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings, he says. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting, or hoping for, good experience, rather than being willing to work with these torments. Now, remember when you first saw the announcement in the Spirit Rock newsletter or email thing saying, hey, retreat, nine-day retreat with Steve and Carol and Franz and Alexis. Hey, in the spring, it's going to be nice in California then. The rains have stopped. It's warming up. It's warmer than up there, over there. Hey, that'd be nice. Go to California for a week, nine days, and hey, in the spring, and hey, just go to the meditation center, calm down, chill out, open up, love and peace, whoa, hey, yeah, I like those guys anyway, okay, yeah, I want to do that. You know, there's some variant of that kind of goes on in our mind that kind of hooks us into getting here. But actually, once you get here, all we're going to do is work with these tormented states of mind. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, that really, it's going to be most of the time it's going to be spent working with these torments. But we didn't think of it that way. We thought, oh, I'm going to get something. Well, like he said, yogis often make the mistake of expecting or at least hoping for good experience rather than knowing that they're going to be working with these torments. So when we have the information, when we reflect on it intelligently, we can recognize we can relax, we can exercise some restraint, we can reframe our understanding, then we can actually be mindfully aware. So here is where we start developing our own empirical wisdom. When we use mindful awareness to recognize, in this moment, this is what's being known. And what is being known is this unskillful state of mind, this obsessive visitor to the mind. Frustration, impatience, judgment, self-judgment, irritation, whatever. And with that, we have to work with it. Now, what does mindfulness actually, what does this awareness actually do? You become aware of something, and then what? Okay, been there, done that. Next. These things stick around. You know, these, 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 States of mind, they have some roots in delusion and they have the fuel of restlessness and we're just caught over and over again in the story, in the narrative of our obsession. Somebody was mentioning today in a group, you know, uh, you know I sit down and I, I, I'm present for a couple of moments, then my mind wanders off, you know, and I, and I bring it back and, it, and then it wanders off to the same place and I bring it back, wanders, and wanders off to the same place, the same future fantasy planning, something or other, these things have, these things got legs. 
You know, they got deep roots in restlessness and delusion. And so we have to be willing to, and this is what awareness asks us to do, is, you know, stay with it. Be with it. Open to it. Receive it. Feel your way into it. Allow yourself to become intimate with the nature of these states of mind. What is the nature of fear? What is the nature of anxiety? We know the story of my anxiety. When I'm anxious, I know the story. When I'm afraid, I know the story. But what is the, what's the nature of these states of mind? And we can only know that by being present with, feeling into, what does this feel like in the heart? We know the story. Okay, that, that got the story. We know the kinds of thinking that goes along with these states of mind. But let's feel what it feels like in the heart. Let's feel what it, condi- what it conditions for experiences in the body. You know, all the tightness, the heat, the clenching, the, the contraction, the, the you know, pressure in the mind and in the body due to these visitors. So as we, as we are willing to spend time just being with and feeling into these states of mind, we gain knowledge. We just observe. We're just observing. We're not trying to figure it out. We're not trying to get rid of it. We're not trying to you know, explain it. We're not trying to justify it. We're not trying to do anything like that. We just want to know how it is. And that's what awareness does. Awareness just registers. This is how it is. Remembering to recognize this is this moment. This is the next moment. This is the next moment. Now, what happens as we're willing and able to do that? Of course, we develop a lot of patience. We develop a lot of perseverance. We develop a lot of uh, confidence in our practice. We develop some understanding about the nature of these experiences. This is really important. So, awareness reveals the nature of these states of mind. And as we keep going, the sixth step, or the sixth phase of working with them is insight arises. Now insight, Vipassana insight, is not so much from thinking. We've had some thinking when we started using our intelligence to think about these you know, uh, unwholesome states of mind. But insight, or Vipassana insight, is different. If you observe something long enough, you just watch, and you watch, and you watch, and you watch, and you observe, and you just collect data of what it's like, like being a, like a scientist of your own heart. Just watch, and observe, and watch, and observe. Eventually, understanding will dawn on you. Oh, this is the way it is. The experience you've seen, you may see hundreds of times, thousands of times, before the understanding of, oh, this is the way it is arises in the mind. And what is it that arises in the mind? What understanding arises in the mind from this kind of awareness practice? Three understandings. The first one that we see and we get, we intuit, we intuit it is, these things are out of my control. I don't make them happen. I can't get rid of them. They have a life of their own. They arise due to their own causes and conditions and they last as long as they want to and then they finally go away. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. Right? I mean, I mean I, when I say this, you can all say, yeah, right, that, that, I, I see it that way. But we have to come to this to our, through our own experience. 
This is seeing a certain characteristic of all these states of mind. They're impersonal. They're not you. They're not yours. They're not who you are. They have their own life. There is awareness of them, of yes, but you're not them. This is a... It can be a little scary, but it's a profoundly liberating and releasing understanding. It's like, great, <laughs> not mine, not me. Don't have to get rid of them. I just have to not get entangled in them. The second understanding that we arrive at is no matter how tempting they are to indulge in desire, wow, you know, or blaming, wow, or being impatient, yeah. I mean, it just, it just seems so right to just indulge in these things at times. You know? No matter how right it feels, it's always unsatisfying. Maybe in the moment of just blurting it out, is that there. And then the regret sets in. And then you realize just how unsatisfactory it really is to either experience or to express. This understanding, it takes a while, but we'll grow in understanding or the understanding of the <coughs> dukkha characteristic, the unsatisfactoriness of all these states of mind will dawn on us. And when we understand that deeply, it's liberating. It just releases the mind from the grip of this is going to be satisfying somehow. We've seen it isn't over and over and over again. Now we understand it never will be. These will never be skillful, functional strategies for dealing with anything. That's liberating. That really changes your whole belief structure about how to be happy in life, how to respond to conditions challenging conditions rather than how to be rather than just trusting on being caught and the third insight the third knowledge that we gain is if we stay if we're willing if we're willing to stay there with this state of mind or these states of mind when they arise and be with them and just hang there with them and just feel them we know they're unpleasant they're really unsatisfying they're just kind of running through our mind without us having any control one thing you'll notice, one thing you'll begin to understand is they don't last very long. The story, the narrative of them can go on in your mind forever. We're carrying narratives from our past two decades, three decades ago, something that happened then. We still got the story. That experience is long gone, but we still got the narrative. What this insight does is it sees that that the source of that narrative no longer exists. So whatever narrative you're caught in, whatever story you're telling yourself that justifies acting in this tormented way, you see, it's there, it's there, it's not. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to explain it away. You don't have to hide from it. It just disappears by itself. One of the conditions that gives rise to these tormented states of mind is unwise attention. They only arise when you're not paying careful attention. And as soon as you start paying careful attention, one of their necessary ingredients isn't there.
and so they don't last long. But this is this knowledge can only come, can only be liberating when it comes from your own direct observation. Meaning, you have to be willing to hang in there with the unpleasantness, the unsatisfactoriness of these states of mind. Hang in there with it, with without just trying to get rid of it, without just trying to deny it or avoid it, and just like, I want to know what this is about. Let me just, let me just be with it. And you be with it, and you be with it, over and over again, and eventually you get it, or the knowledge arises in the mind. This thing doesn't last. This, is, this has got no, no substance to it. It's really not satisfying. And when we're free of that, those misbeliefs, the mind won't resort to them in the future. Or you'll notice it quicker and it won't happen so often. This is the path of freedom. This is where wisdom leads to liberation. As long as you're aware of these torments, you're doing well. As long as you're aware of them, you're doing well, Sayadu Tejaniya says. In order to understand them, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle them, good experiences will naturally follow. Always remember that it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. And when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Just sit for a moment, let these words all float through and settle in. mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as these torments that we suffer. But it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. for listening to the Dharma. It's about a half hour for more awareness practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.